0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with industry veterans, Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman
1: well good evening everybody this is dom tabella and tonight we will not be having my partner michael harsman with us uh, michael had a little bit of a surgery uh on his elbow nothing significant but he is recovering and uh as an alternate i think a terrific prior guest with us phil blancato uh, will be a co-host with us tonight and we'll talk about everything uh about the markets the economy Uh, probably not get to Italian wines tonight, Phil, but maybe we save that for a future date. Phil is the CEO of Lattenberg Asset Management and the chief market strategist for Osaic. I believe that's the new name of the company, right, Phil?
2: It is. We just recently changed our name. Some of you might remember the name, Advisor Group, but Osaic is a wealth management firm with about... uh, About six hundred billion dollars under management that we get to advise on and 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 financial advisors that we work with about twelve thousand folks. So pretty large financial services firm. We decided to combine the firms together and come up with one new fund name.
1: Well, congratulations on that, Phil. And you guys have really grown to a pretty substantial firm over the last not not even that many years, right? Maybe half a dozen years or so.
2: Yeah, really we just keep getting bigger and bigger and taking advantage of the opportunities in the marketplace and for it's been just a, a really exciting experience to be part of the, the growth and, more importantly, help folks manage their money, which is what we care most about.
1: Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Uh, so, Phil, uh, Mike's not here, and, and that uh, I like the the banter and the back and forth when Mike is. Um, so I'm going to take that role a little bit with you tonight. And, by the way, we've got really rave reviews when you've been on us with us in the past, and uh, I don't expect tonight's going to be any different. But I do want to take the kind of almost a devil's advocate approach with you tonight because we get a lot of questions from clients, literally daily. Um they're looking at the CNBCs and the Fox business and the Bloombergs. And, you know, they they, they have their own interpretation of, of what they're hearing. And I think one of your trademarks is you you kind of speak to people in a very calming manner uh and no one's 100 right or wrong but i think you, you historically have been pretty spot on with your ideas and your thoughts so i'm really kind of looking to share some of that with our uh viewers our clients and and i think uh uh the fact that it's the end of the second quarter maybe the timing of this is pretty good
2: For so sure,
1: all,
2: and i appreciate that there i can understand why this may not feel like a successful market for a lot of folks. We have endless conversations about recessions that haven't happened. And then this oddity of higher inflation and higher interest rates for the first time in maybe, you know, call it a decade, really. And I think folks are a bit confused how the market has climbed the wall, worry. So maybe we can, we can have some fun with that. So, so let's start.
1: You, you already hit the the first word on my list: recession. They, the experts, the experts have been talking about a recession uh, as uh, as almost guaranteed, It's almost written in stone, and they've been talking about it, Bill, for twelve to eighteen months, and at least through the first six months of this year, not even close.
2: Yeah, to the credit of folks who. Don't like the use of the word, it's different this time. That was the belief going into us that this time around, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to combat high levels of inflation, those two painful pills that economies had to swallow, things costing more when you go to the grocery store and trying to buy our mo- money at higher rates, would cause spending to slow down significantly, cause co- corporations to earn less money, which would propel us into a recession. And the, the idea was every time historically when the federal government tried to do this, it led to a recession other than one time. And we call those soft landings. If the federal government can survive this and not cause a deep recession, it would be a soft landing. A hard landing would be a deep and wide recession, something akin to 2008, but not exactly the same. So this time, it just doesn't happen. For all the telegraphing that it might happen, why has the playbook not worked? Because I would argue this time it's very different. And the differences are clearly that the U.S. consumer, and when you break the consumer down, you have to think of it in three big buckets. Bucket one, folks under 30, bucket two, 30 to 60, and bucket three, 60 and above. I'll keep it simple. The folks in the second and third bucket are in fantastic shape, and, and that is the, clearly the reason why we have not fallen into recession. You see, Dom, we just don't get recession when people are gainfully employed. And the unemployment markets clearly speaks to, not only do people have a fantastic job as of right now, because we're seeing folks quit, roughly 4 million people per month quit and go to a new job. So that means they're taking the opportunity to find a high quality job and are doing it every single month. Then you go raises. The average person has got anywhere. Now in aggregate, as much as a 20 to 30% raise, depending on how much they made going in. Said a different way. If you made less than $100,000 a year, you've got probably the upside of a 20 to 30 percent raise in the two years combined since the pandemic ended. For example, California dock workers just last week got a 30 percent pay hike to accommodate for higher inflation. Folks who wash dishes for a living making $50,000 a year are now making upwards of $65,000 a year. So this liftoff has created $2.4 trillion of additional wealth for people who are on that bottom rung of the workforce. So that means. The, the, the folks that are generally left behind haven't been left behind. The folks that were in that middle bucket that had a good job got a lower raise, but got a raise. And the folks that are older have accumulated the most wealth in human history. Today we're worth $162 trillion. So even though the Fed has hiked interest rates and we're dealing with some inflation, it's had no effect. We have not slowed down the amount of money we spend from sales. And of the things we do like travel and leisure, we've bought back all the goods we wanted to buy during a pandemic so you're seeing goods prices come down significantly things aren't nearly as bad as they as a historically been when the federal's were raising rates and it's because people have more cash than they've ever had before more wealth than they've had before a better job than they've ever had before and making more money that's not the recipe of a recession at least not yet potentially down the road nothing deep nothing wide but for now that's not the recipe of a recession
1: So, Phil, I I did say I was going to play devil's advocate tonight, um, but those are the exact reasons why some of the naysayers say, hey, wage inflation is not going to go away. It's not going to go away slowly. Core inflation is going to stay relatively high. And that's literally what's going to force the Federal Reserve to continuously raise interest rates, be aggressive in raising interest rates, and maybe, maybe not push us over the edge, but definitely to the edge.
2: We spent a lot of time analyzing core inflation, and I like something called core PCE. So PCE stands for personal consumption expenditures. When you go to a store and you buy milk, it's a part of PCE. There's 148 different factors that make up core PCE. Basically it's simple. Core PCE is what you buy, what you spend every single day. And to Dominic's credit, that number Hasn't come down nearly as much as the Federal Reserve would like it to be. That number was eight percent; it's only come down to five. Remember, headline inflation was ten. Now it's it's down. So,
1: Phil, I can say the beginning of this year was like what six-ish, and it's down to five and change. So, we've seen it come down, but it hasn't really, really come down anywhere near as aggressive as the Fed wanted it
2: to. But here's why I'm not worried about this scenario, because the amount of money we've gotten to raise either equal to or allowed us to survive this bout of higher inflation so yes folks don't like it but what's the most important thing in their sphere when it comes to spending money gasoline gasoline is at or below darn near where we were pre-pandemic prices around three bucks a gallon so gasoline is no longer a hindrance if folks got a pretty significant wage, sure and what we know that it's a bit more expensive but we're also seeing the consumer being much more prudent they'll go to a big box store they'll be a little bit more careful where they're spending their money What they're not on goods, where they're not slowing down is services. So to your point, I think the Federal Reserve is gonna continue to hike rates, but the Fed can do a very good job of bringing down costs of goods. What they can't do a good job is bringing down demand for services. And there's a little bit of a tricky situation. First off, it takes two full years for a Fed rate hikes to really filter through the system. And we're not but a year in. And at that, a year ago, they start year and a few year and three months. It started in March of 2022. From a year and three months in from the first hike but really i care more about the middle stage of the hike so i'd say we're only a year in we have another year to really understand the full impact and we are seeing corporate earnings now down two quarters in a row and probably going to be down a third quarter so we're seeing that impact there the fed has two more hikes in them i think what's called the natural rate of inflation which is what it costs you to live versus interest rates they're now equal and in fact right now wages are higher than the rate of inflation if i just use regular core cpi or headline cpi wages are now higher than inflation so that means the consumer continues to be in good shape the fed will hike two more times to really kind of try to put the nail in the coffin of this but here's the funny thing you know tom people sometimes forget where the wealth of the country is and where's the wealth of the country today far and away and you know this from being an expert in this space the wealth of the countries with people who are over the age of 60. Remember my three buckets. Bucket one, the millennials, well, they're just getting going. They have lots of debt. They're, they're consumers today, and they're overweight, so they're doing okay with spending. Bucket two, the folks with families and growing, they're big spenders, those folks in that, in that 30 to 60 range. But bucket three is the important one. With 65,000 people retiring every single day, they're retiring quite wealthy in most cases. And what do they want? They want an economic slowdown a little bit. Why? Because prices come down, but they're not without money. So the folks without money are traveling, going to get on an airline, go to a restaurant, go go to a hotel, go on a cruise line. You'll see these bookings are way out, fully booked. It's because we have so much cash, and that demand side of it, the Federal Reserve can't impact it. Those folks are going to spend no matter what, and they're going to keep us afloat. It doesn't mean a roaring economy, but it doesn't mean a recessive one because there's enough cash in the system to hold us on. And that's the critical difference than other times in the past where it hasn't been the case. And Phil, when, when people,
1: uh, your clients, my clients talk about their wealth, um, you know, they feel wealthy when they look at their value of their home. And we have not seen, we saw that in a way where you saw dramatic drops in real estate prices. Not only have we not seen any significant drops in real estate prices, but in a lot of cases, they've continued to go higher. This is, I think, where the Fed is really kind of in a in a t- catch-22 situation where they raised mortgage rates. They thought that would slow down the real estate market. It really hasn't slowed it and because we didn't build houses for so long. But housing is a powerful driver of our economic growth. So we have this, again, this dichotomy where real estate prices haven't fallen. People still feel, relatively speaking, wealthy interest rates really haven't had the impact that the Fed thought they would have.
2: That's exactly right. And I applaud the Fed. I'm probably one of the few who does. I think the Fed did a wonderful job of keeping us out of a very deep recession. I think if you look at Europe and you look at Japan, they are obviously, with their federal governments not being as aggressive as ours was, one, we didn't have a recession, and they did. Not not terrible, but they're all very slow-growth economies. And now they're battling much higher levels of inflation than we are. So as of now, until the the Fed really sees a breakage from what they've done, I'm going to back them up. But their impact hasn't been nearly as deep and wide. Why? Well, $2.7 trillion was saved during a pandemic. We're still spending that money. They're not going to be able to affect what people spend when they have savings. And here's another very important point, point on. Because of your point on wealth, specifically homes, if you look at simple, I'm sure you all do this, how much what you're worth and how much you owe. Historically, over the, since 1980, if you look at that average, it's between Anywhere from 10 to 14% based on what you're worth versus what you owe. And right now, today, it's the lowest since 1980. Believe it or not, it's only at about 9.5%. So in other words, we're at the lowest, what we call this, debt-to-asset ratio. What I'm worth, including my home, versus what I owe, is the lowest number since 1980. So that breeds to this consumer that's not stressed. Even though there's some talk about credit card debt going a bit higher, sure, there is some of that. But if you look at folks gainfully employed and having savings, that has not we are not seeing any defaults in credit card debt. We're not seeing any defaults in homes. We're not seeing any de- in corporate defaults. Why? Because the economy is healthy enough because of 10 years of low interest rates and a gainfully employed em- consumer to survive this slowing down of the U.S. economy. And it's certainly grinding to a very mild halt. But it's not 2008 where we've got trillions of dollars in default, people walking away from homes, see a real upheaval in the unemployment market that's not the case this time at least not yet and it doesn't seem to be the case because we need more just today you see more jobs open there are people looking corporations have gotten smart they're reducing the number of hours worked per week but they're not laying anybody off well that's a good thing because we don't have pressure on the unemployment market people stay game for employed they still spend it keeps us alive
1: so phil Again, I'm going most of the kind of questions I'm getting from my clients. What keeps the Fed from screwing this up? And I agree with you. I think overall the Fed's done a relatively good job, but they certainly have within their means to over-tighten, not look forward, but always continuously look backwards. There is that possibility there. You want to address that?
2: There are some black swans that I think about out there that start with the Federal Reserve. Let's assume they just go too far let's assume they push interest rates to seven or eight percent because they're just not slowing down the u.s economy that would be damaging because you could create a long-term impact on the housing market and on the bond market where you have real significant losses for a long time to come and then to add to that when loan demand people borrowing money banks or corporations i'm sorry corporations or people stop borrowing money because interest rates are too high then you see an real slowing down the U.S. economy at the core growth of an economy we need spending and spending right now is surviving because of bent up saving when that savings runs out and that savings will run out at this pace of saving we'll probably run out of that excess cash by the end of the year now we're going to be solely reliant on those wealthy older Americans who are going to spend which will keep us alive but not completely and then that middle group if they can't borrow to grow or borrow to build and corporations aren't willing to but borrow money to grow a new factory or whatever the case may be, then we will slow down significantly and have a very nasty recession if the Federal Reserve hasn't gotten out of the way and they haven't accomplished this. The one thing I greatly struggle with with the Federal Reserve, and this is a mistake in my opinion, they're they, not a lot they've done wrong. I don't think they're going to hike much more. They're talking about two more hikes and then stopping to see what the effect they had. They did this last month. They're smart enough to not hike in June just to see the impact. And you'll probably see them. in july and then maybe pause in august and go in september that seems a likely scenario the one thing i i'm struggling with is this desire to be back at two percent inflation i think that's the dangerous mistake that they're making as long as the trend inflation continues to go down and albeit it may not be as fast as we like by the way the way you get out of wage inflation is you grow the size of the economy and you keep wages basically stagnant at that point increasing them two to three percent a year rather than five 10 or 15 so the size of the business gets bigger but the wages stay stable that's how we get back to the normal world wages and it's already starting to happen growth is happening albeit not not as fast and wages are starting to stabilize but my point is this desire to be back at two percent why if anyone i'm 55 years old if you think about 1980 to call it 2000 make it simple we were very happy to live with four percent inflation it was fine uh, things were went just well. We had a pretty healthy economy for decades, and a roaring stock market, and did accumulate a heck of a lot of debt in this country. In the last few years, we've accumulated trillions of dollars of debt to stave off some really bad scenarios, 2008 and 2020. And now we've got to worry about the costs of that debt, uh, and not to mention we've got to worry about the Fed trying to really go back to some number that's arbitrary when I think we can be just fine as a corpor- as a as a country. At four percent or lower as long as the trend continues down if it takes three four years remember every inflationary cycle ended it just might take a bit longer than they expected this time and that's where i think they got to be careful about not being too impatient and not targeting some goal that that may not really be necessary bill the the, the next
1: one on my list of worries um it- you know, we, we all, whether it's as a consumer, got used to 3% mortgages, but businesses got used to borrowing at exceedingly ridiculously low rates. Um, and we literally have a large portion of corporate America right now that when they have to end up refinancing their debt, um, they may not be too happy with the rates that they're getting or will be getting. Um, and there's a large, portion, maybe a third of the Russell 2000 companies that can't pay the interest on in their debt right now. What happens with corporate profits if these rates stay higher?
2: So that chicken hasn't come home to roost yet. That's a critical piece of I don't disagree with you that when they have to refinance, whether it's a commercial real estate that has to renew their lease at a much higher rate, or a company just who has debt out there; they have to mature and re- reissue new debt. Meaning they issued Apple issues a bond five years ago at two percent interest rates. That bond's a five-year bond. If they come due this year. They got to reissue that debt if they want that money at a much higher rates. So that means if I think about if if you're buying a home, everyone, if if you're buying a home and you're and you went out and your mortgage five years ago was three percent and your mortgage today was seven, then obviously you have less money to make towards the principal of that loan. Or the value of the home because you're paying more on interest rates. Same thing with corporations. They'll earn less money if they're spending less interest, more money on, on interest payments. So the biggest corporation in the world is facing this in a way that it hasn't faced in a long time. And to be quizzical, uh, I would ask you who the biggest corporation in the world is, and you won't get this because I'm not answering properly. In my opinion the biggest corporation in the world is the United States of America, far and away. And if you look at the $31 trillion we have today in debt, we were financing that money for 1.5% three years ago. It was the lowest rate in history. So, what the United States did was balloon the size of the deficit at exceptionally low rates, the lowest rates in history. Now, what's happening, like corporations and eventually people, as interest rates push higher, growth corporate governments fail in the brunt of it where we went to we were spending 400 billion dollars a year on interest payments today we're spending 800 billion and soon we'll spend 1.2 trillion dollars a year on interest payments alone that means the federal government won't be able to be able to spend less money assuming they don't borrow more but spend less money to be able to stimulate the economy to your point corporations are in that same boat except corporations were a little smarter than the federal government the average maturity of federal government bonds is five years the average maturity of corporate bonds is double that 10 years so what you see is most of, of these companies that over the last 10, 5 to 10 years issued debt, they did it to where that chicken comes home to roost, 2025 to 2030. So in that five-year period, if interest rates don't start to come back down, and we, don't see, and we see corporations either just not issuing new debt, they mature their bonds and they don't want more because it's too expensive, or they're having to issue debt at higher rates, it means they're going to earn less money, it means the stock market won't grow because corporate earnings are down. So the black swan scenario is, assuming the Fed doesn't get out of the way, keeps hiking rates higher, not only does the federal government not able to spend to stimulate, neither will corporations. So then that means you, the consumer, whether you're trying to buy a car or a house or do a credit card, are gonna pay much higher rates for much longer and you won't spend either. So that older population that's still gonna spend because they have money and retirement won't be strong enough to keep us out of recession. There's your recession scenario that they hike rates too high for too long, created too much pain, and, and that we get into a deep and wide recession. Prices reset significantly, and we start the clock all over again. I just don't think we're there yet.
1: So, Phil, I, I agree with you on the corporate side. I think, I hate to say they're smart enough, I think they'll be in tune enough to deal with this change, but you talked on the real black swan, which was government, and they are now financing an insane amount of debt at much higher interest rates. In context, we look at the entire federal spending on defense and all debt service will be higher than that number, more than we spend on defense. Um, How do we solve
2: that problem? Is it even possible? And to do that math, we spend $700 billion a year on defense. Soon we'll spend, as I mentioned already, 1.2 trillion. Well, a couple of things. Couple things that I think are interesting. One, we are the best bond market in the world, so we have to make payments on our debt. The whole debt ceiling thing was just a farce; it's, it's whimsical. I think we wouldn't going to make payments on our debt. It's just silly, uh, but in any event, we have to make those payments on our debt. However, something about the debt math is a little bit funky to me. First off, of the thirty-one, almost thirty-two trillion dollars, let's not forget the federal government owns about seven trillion of it. So one hand's paying the other hand. I'm going to guess in that scenario, they say, stop paying me. You don't need to pay me on the bonds. I own. Why make one part of the government pay it to the other.
1: Well, the silliness is not only is the Federal Reserve collecting interest on those bonds it's holding, it then returns the interest back to the – if we, you and I did it, Phil, in our business, I think the police would show up and take us away. And but I,
2: think, it right is a fact,
1: farce. I agree with you that the whole thing is a farce.
2: So it's really not $31 trillion, It's about – call it $24 trillion. Which is the size of our GDP. So when everyone talks about how in debt we are, in fairness, for every dollar we owe, we make about a dollar. Now, I'm on the camp. If I think about my days of studying Milton Freedom and Austrian economics, that in every scenario, inflation is temporary. We've never had a permanent bout of inflation. And then the reason why is because demographics matter. Demographics, the more the world ages, the more things deflate, not inflate. Older populations need less money to survive, spend less money than younger populations. And if you think about it, places like China are beginning to have a demographic time bomb where a billion people are going to be 60 at the same time. Even India, which now has passed China from a, a population standpoint, but will soon begin to train, trend down, not up. My point is inflation, specifically because of the demographics and technology, you can think of all the things your phone does for you that limited amount of money you spend today are gonna trend back down over time. So I think we will go through a period of slower growth because of the amount of money the federal government has to pay in interest payments, but it's not a permanent situation. And in fact, I would would assume that interest rates, are you ready for this, Tom? I think are back below 3% by the end of 2025, if not mid 2025. So you have a period of time where corporations will have to spend a bit more, people will have to spend a bit more, government spends a bit more next two years mean i think a sideways market in equities i don't see a scenario where the market really grows significantly unless i'm wrong and we start to get real growth in the economy again and in that scenario you're better off with owning high quality bonds paying you a great yield that'll go up in price and 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 as uh, as interest rates go down and owning dividend paying stocks that are going to let you be paid to wait out this period of high interest rates and inflation Once that trend is our friend goes back down, then the stock market wars. We're just not there yet. So I'm not worried about it long-term. It's much more of a short-term next two-year scenario.
1: So, Phil, we're getting close to our uh, break here, but I do now want to switch gears. I think we're both in agreement, no deep recession, at least through the end of this year, mild at best. Uh, I think more of a stag inflation scenario where – Inflation stays a little bit higher than we want it to be, but the economy neither goes up or grows aggressively nor declines dramatically. One last opinion on that subject.
2: You know, it's funny. When we talk about that scenario, I'm not a stagflation person because I think stagflation prices go higher and growth flattens out. I don't think prices are going to push much higher. I think we're going to get a scenario where they both level out and we see this period of going down. I am a bit worried about this inflation, although it course also call deflation, but disinflation is where prices fall dramatically because of lack of demand. And we're seeing a bit of that. We'll see places like China and Vietnam and Indonesia and Bangladesh really begin to import deflation to us. Hopefully it gets the federal out of the way and, and corrects things quickly, stop raising interest rates and cuts them. But you gotta be careful. I'm more worried about deflation because if you're worth less tomorrow than you are today, it's a terrible scenario and it's just like Europe. So I'm not worried about stagflation. I'm less worried about inflation. We're seeing the trend be a slow burn lower. But if it speeds up because of our demand slowing down because of the high prices, we got to fix that quickly. And Now you fix it by cutting rates.
1: All right, Phil, so we're going to take a quick break here, and then I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the market so far this year, and where do we go the rest of the year?
2: Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
3: Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenton Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800 441 7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors LLC and Ultimus Fund Distributors LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you,
2: Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report.
1: And welcome back. Uh, Phil, so we're going to change gears a little bit. We talked about the fear of the economy and the consumer and businesses and government spending. Let's talk about this crazy market. And I'm prefacing it by using the word crazy. Year to date, the SP, and these are approximate numbers up about 14%. The Dow, we'll call it an even three, and the NASDAQ over um 30%, Bill. Over 30%. Um crazy, some people would argue good numbers. But the fly in the ointment, Phil, uh, and I'm looking at RSP, the ETF for the equal weighted S&P is only up, what? Three, 4%, Phil? And if I look at the ETF for the value index, you know what the value index is up here today, Phil? Not even 4%. Nothing. 0 Phil, zero. Fair. What a great market. Half of the S&P, you're up zero. And there's some, Bobbleheads on TV have called it the Fabulous 7 or Magnificent 7 or the 10-something or other, have pretty much been responsible for most of the gains in the S&P 500. So talk to me about this great market we're in.
2: Yeah. uh, As of the second week of June, the 10 stocks, there are 10 stocks, and you know them. It's Netflix, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Google, it's Meta, and so on, uh, Salesforce. And those stocks represented 100% of the return of the S&P 500. I have wonderful news. As of today, 20 stocks now represent 100% of the return of the S&P 500.
1: That actually is good news, Phil. And I'm I'm being a little little,
2: little sarcastic, but but it is actually good news. Tell tell our viewers why, please. So what happened, folks, is at a time when we are in an earnings recession, so in the first quarter of 2023, the average amount of, cor- amount of all corporates in the S&P 500 combined together lost money, uh, about 3%. In the second quarter, uh, it looks like that number is all the same, about another 3%. So that's two quarters in a row that we saw a contraction in earnings. And we're expecting the third quarter, the quarter we're in right now, we be got average something between 5 and 6%, maybe as much as 8% contraction. And then finally, the fourth quarter might start to grow again. So that you got to scratch your head for a minute and go, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. We see corporate is making less money and yet they're going up in price. Okay, so you would assume it's because stocks were cheap. But factually, stocks are not inexpensive. If you look at the price of a company divided by how much they earn, what you're seeing is companies on average are not any cheaper today than they were anytime in the last 10 years. In fact, they're a bit more expensive. So why is the stock market, specifically these 20 names and really the 10, up so much this year? Well, there is this euphoria around technology, and it reminds me of 2001, reminds me to a degree post-pandemic 2021, when everything just went straight up. And it reminds me a bit of this idea that the future is so bright, I want my own companies, regardless of how much they cost, and I want to be a part of that, that opportunity. And what's different this time is that historically, technology companies don't earn a lot of money. But if you look at some of the names that are in this mix, specifically Apple and Microsoft, their profits are really quite strong. They are putting up profitable numbers that are some of the strongest they've ever been at. So something interesting happened, and I, be quite honest with you, didn't expect it, didn't anticipate it, because the narrative, the playbook on growth stocks is you don't want to own growth companies when the cost of borrowing money, to Dallas' point before, is going up. Because growth companies borrow a lot of money to grow. They keep investing in the company, investing, investing, new ideas, new factories, new programs, new, new place to go, new new, new opportunities globally and domestically. And they borrow money to grow. They don't pay dividends generally. And they you know, usually are going to be very interest rate sensitive. So when interest rates are going higher, you don't want to own them. And that's why last year they got clobbered. But something, something happened last year that even I didn't pick up on and I regret it was that they just simply got oversold. It was, you know it was as if the, the entire herd moved so hard in one direction that the best names became really good value opportunities I and mean, that would be those names i've already mentioned so what happened this year because those names are believe it or not almost 40 percent of the weight of the s p 500 the old narrative of raising tides rising tides raise all boats because those 20 names represent 40 percent of the entire value of the s p have rocketed so much higher, it's lifted the S&P 500. But unfortunately, either you own the S&P 500 index, which you participated in that, or you own those names individually, good for you. If you own anything else besides that, international, small cap stocks, mid cap stocks, value stocks, you've not made any money. But my problem is, this is a very narrow market. And narrow means, if you remember way back in the 80s, we used to have these things called value traps. Companies that pay these big dividends, and then one day they realize they couldn't actually afford the dividend. They slashed the dividend, you got clobbered, and you lost a whole bunch of money. And that harkened back to the banking crisis of the 80s. Now, today, this is not exactly a value trap because these companies do earn money. Let me give you a scenario. Let's assume for a minute that China decides to take over Taiwan, and NVIDIA, one of the names that has really rocketed higher, gets caught up in that. That stock will get cut in half in a blink of an eye. And then these things tend to have a little bit of contagion with them. If one blows up, more than likely, the supply chain in China would get interrupted with Apple and with Microsoft and all these companies that are reliant on China for parts or for services. So in the same way they rocketed higher, I would strongly suggest to the listeners today, take some profits. Finance 101. What everyone does poorly is when I've gone up a whole bunch. And it's certainly not because of exploding sales and growth it's about because they were just cheaper than they should have been take some profits take advantage of the opportunity take out your initial principal and reallocate it so maybe some in my opinion some dividend stocks that haven't gone up this year why because a narrow market's a dangerous market it's a speculative market it's a place that as quickly as it got up it can come right back down
1: so phil I-, I want to expand on that a little bit but Uh, maybe the loaded question first if we look at the gap between uh the equal weighted s p 500 versus uh, the normal s p that we watch on tv every day um that gap is as wide as we've seen dating back to 2001. i think another critical time in our history where markets had a really really rough period um does the top come down or the bottom go up? In other words, do that portion of the stock market that has not partated, participated so far this year start to participate the next second half of this year? Do we get some final resolution and the bottom comes up? Or do these speculative stocks that have done so tremendously well come down? What's your guess?
2: Early versus late. For now, come back down. They've got to come back down to earth. In fairness, the names I mentioned are the n- names of the future. Maybe not Netflix, but certainly, you know, Salesforce, maybe. But NVIDIA from a chip standpoint and Meta and Google and Facebook. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Amazon, uh, obviously Microsoft and Apple. These names are the names of the future. They're their biggest economic drivers. We're having their trillion-dollar companies. So they, they're just very expensive right now. So my expectation is they should come back now. We should give back. 5 to 8% on the S&P 500 to get to where we really should be and those names bouncing back. So an uh, expectation over the short term as the Fed keeps hiking rates, let's not forget, July is a pretty tough month. August is the worst month and the worst month of the year is September. So I think you get clobbered going into September as the Fed keeps hiking rates as we go through the rest of the summer here. But then an interesting thing happens on the other side of September. We get an october november time period, your periods of time with great spending Usually lots of euphoria markets as we move towards the end of the year. And I think at that point, what happens is interest rates start to come back down a bit. And suddenly those names, those value names that are that didn't really grow a whole heck of a lot this year, start to earn more money because rates have come back down. Then they're financing debt less so, and folks are buying goods going into the year. Value names tend to be more goods-oriented and less uh, services-oriented the growth side tends to be more service oriented and less goods oriented. So that's part of it in this too as well. But as demand goes into the, end of the year for holiday spending, back to school season's a big season, we see their revenue pick up on value stocks, they start to lift. Those growth companies get have already been sold off, they start to lift. We end the year plus 15 on the S&P 500, right about where we are right now, but it's a much broader and wider market with much more participation. That's a less speculative market. So I wouldn't expect a heck of a lot from here, But I do think if you want, you could make your value bet and get a nice lift off there to catch up to those growth names, because I do think they come back to earth. I.e.,
1: focus your portfolio to stocks that have not participated so far this year, trim some profits on the winners, use that money to buy some of the ones that have kind of been flat year to date. Exactly. Um, you've mentioned it a couple of times. We started the year, earnings on the S&P consensus was, God, over 230, right, Phil? Um, Right now, the S&P earnings are, I think consensus around 220, but there are some people out there, very well known, very well respected, that think earnings could drop significantly from here I've heard one number in the 170 to 180 range by some very well known people on Wall Street. How do how do we get earnings to drop that much? And what's your opinion on it?
2: Consumer would have to fall off a cliff. What's holding us up clearly 68% of the economy is the U.S. consumer. If we get into a political fight where spending really does get reined in, and we're starting to see that, we're starting to see spending really get reined in here. So if government's not spending, the consumer slows down because of higher interest rates and concerns about the forecast inflation we could see earnings drop I don't think that's 170 that would take a, a 2008 it would scenario. be catastrophic economic yeah that's that's not in the cards right now not with the amount of wealth that we've created and the, the debt scenario with the consumer now it doesn't seem plausible but could we go to 205 or 210 that's that's scenario. what does that mean the S&P sells off back to zero you know I don't think we have a scenario where we're down 10 15 percent like last year because the U.S. consumer is just still too strong and gainfully employed. The, the real black swan for that to happen would be the unemployment. Well, let's do some math for everybody. There's 10 million jobs open. There's 4 million people looking. It means there's 6 million extra jobs, give or take. If the unemployment rate pushed back to call it 5%, we've got a workforce of 162 million people. To go from 3.7 to, make it simple, 4.7% unemployment, a full one-point move. That means 1.6 million people would have to be laid off from their current job. And we have to eliminate 6 million other jobs that are open. That's roughly 7.5 million jobs that have, would have to be eliminated see that scenario happen because we have significant drawdown in corporate earnings and lack of consumer confidence. That's a lot of jobs, Tom. That's a whole
1: lot and, 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 Phil, you just threw another one out for us, consumer confidence. We just got a consumer confidence number. Pretty good. Pretty better good than, than it was. Attention. Not great, but better than it was. All right. Consumers feeling pretty good. But when the consumer loses confidence, has that fear factor, that's when they stop spending. I think about what happened after nine eleven, where this country was in shock. What happened after the financial crisis in 08, where people didn't know if their money in the bank was safe. People were holding on to their cash with both fists. I'm not seeing that right now, Phil. And I don't know what would cause that.
2: It would mean people would have to get laid off. But my problem is it's only a small sector of the workforce. There's 330 million people in this country, 162 million are working. We have a participation rate of roughly, it's called 62% because you take out the folks with disability. But that means there's a whole lot of retirees, and the retirees don't care. They're going to go out and spend their money. I bet you most of the folks listening to this podcast have done okay. They saved some money. They're getting a check every month from Social Security. They're getting a check from from their pension or from their assets. And they're going out and having fun. Good for them. They should be go spend and enjoy yourself. That spending is 25% of global GDP, 70% of US GDP, and it's holding us afloat. So the only thing that's gonna pull that down, really squash those older folks, is that rates are so high, things get so expensive, inflation keeps pushing higher that even they stop. There is one scenario that we should talk about. It doesn't seem to be happening, but there is a scenario where that could happen. And you know what that scenario is, Tom? If the energy markets stop cooperating, one thing we forget is that energy is in everything. Your home, the fuel in the plane, the fuel in the car, the carpets on the floor, the byproducts and the chemicals, the food you eat, all comes back to one single source of pricing power, energy. And if the oil market becomes destabilized because of the war in Russia, Ukraine, or we, or in OPEC doesn't play ball, or the United States doesn't play ball, or you know, South America stops pumping or Nigeria stops pumping and they all kind of get together and say, we want prices higher because we can make more money, which happened once already in the last two years. If that's scenario happened with oil went back to $110, $120 a barrel, all bets are off. That's the black swan event. That's when you get a really bad recession and things get ugly pretty fast. But right now, $60 to $70 a barrel of oil, sometimes $80. Natural gas at $2.50 a BTU. What you're seeing is energy companies are so they take advantage of the opportunity, hiking up rates to make money to to, to take care of their green energy demands uh, to pay for them because they need to be subsidized because they don't produce enough electricity. But in any event, it's just not a black swan moment in energy. If that changes, then we got a whole other podcast to talk about and a much bad, much worse place to be because then the spending for the older folks. People do get laid off and we're in a very bad situation because of a high extended period of time when energy is expensive. So again, Phil, I just
1: wanna move it along cause I'm gonna run out of time and 50 more questions to ask you. Um, just spent a little time in Europe. The economy there seems like it's really humming. They are behind us, inflation's still high. They're still, I would say six, maybe nine months behind us in their cycle of raising interest rates and lowering inflation. But the economy seems like they're moving along. China, not quite the economic growth they were hoping for, but they've just added some stimulus. Um, India is humming along. Um, Global economy seems like they're holding up pretty good.
2: They're holding up well enough in spite of high inflation, just like us. Let's not forget, when we get a... When we sneeze, the rest of the world gets a cold, as the old saying goes. Uh, and that's because of the strength of our consumer. Let us fall into a recession, they'll all get well. Why is Europe doing well? Is because, one, there's been a, a lack of goods available, but now the goods are available, so that good sector of their economy is going to turn back down again. And then, two, tourism. Europe is tourism the biggest recession well, in the world. Restaurants, hotels. Oh,
1: Travel,
2: oh, yeah. crazy. Let, let things continue to be expensive where the consumer is not willing to pay for it, and I have to tell you that 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 scenario from a pricing standpoint won't last forever. Folks will get tired. They're making their one to two post-pandemic trips. Maybe there's a third one in there, and I would think it's going to last into next year. But at some point, you'll see that come back to norms. You're seeing flights already at capacity where we were before. Hotels are price the pricing power of hotels right now is the highest it's ever been the price per night in the United States and in Europe. That stuff does get old after a while, and folks are going to say, you know what? Okay, I spent so much on my European vacation, I'm not going to go again until next year because they can get it out of the system. We're, we're in that get it out of the system moment right now. That should change going into, uh, I would think, mid-summer, end of summer next year, and that's when those prices should come down uh, and get us back to some sort of normal range of inflation. That's why I think inflation doesn't really break until 2025.
1: Um, again, changing gears, Phil, trying to squeeze it as much as I can. in. I know you are a big follower of the leading economic indicators. Um, just give us a quick synopsis. What is that in English? And what are they telling you right now?
2: So for those of you listening in, if you'd like to do what I do for a living, uh, uh there's a, a one real easy statistic, it's called LEI leading economic indicator. It's a 10 factor index. It gives you a rolling average of the S&P 500. So it'll look at things like prices of bonds, consumer spending, consumer services, and puts a bunch of data together for you and makes it really easy, combines it all together into a number. And we look at that number, and we look at when it's in expansion mode and when it's in contraction mode. When it's in expansion mode, it's going higher. Then we have an idea of where the stock market, where's the best place to bet your money in the stock market and how far away we'd be from a slowdown. When it's going lower, we also have a scenario where what's the best thing to do when, when it's trending lower, the economy is being to contract, what's your best bet, and how far we are from a recession. It's been uncanny at getting recessions right. And what you see is, it'll give you an expectation of how far we're away. And what we're, right now, what it's suggesting is we're just months away from a recession, that we're probably at the most six to eight months away. Well, this time's a bit different that you'll see this trend of it and it kind of has its peaks and values, but the trend of it suggests that we're actually already in a recession. What the data says is right now it's, is that it's so weak, we're at 4.5% month over month LEI and 8% year over year. That number is usually when we're in a recession. Well, guess what folks, we're not in one right now. So what's happening, because the strength of the consumers hanging in there, we are seeing a slowing down of the US economy, but not so much that we're in a major contraction mode just yet. So maybe this time LEI is gonna say, okay, we slowed down enough, but we're going to start to grow again. And usually we're, when we hit that 8% number is when it begins to reverse turn turnaround. So in the next few months, keep an eye on LEI. It comes out once a month. You can Google it. It'll come out, and you'll see it just came out a few days ago. So let's look at the at mid to late July and you'll see it again. And I would bet it's going to show modest improvement because it'll bottom out before the recession happens. That means we probably get some mild recession here or just a real slowdown, and we start grinding higher. But it's a great way to keep an eye on things and give you an idea of where to make your bet on stocks and bonds and how bad things really are out there.
1: So, I, I won't say a crystal ball that actually works, but a crystal ball that has been pretty accurate over the years in forecasting where we are in the economic cycle.
2: Yeah, I would think that's right. It does a very good job of forecasting where we are in the economic cycle. You know, we want to give you an easy one. I think a real easy one, everybody. You want to know when they get nervous about your money? Keep an eye on temporary jobs. Once a month, we get the unemployment report. There's all kinds of headlines around. It's all we talk about, and it's a really important number. Usually, unemployment's a lagging indicator. People get laid off after things go bad, not before things go bad. So, if the unemployment's ticking higher, means things are worse if it's already being felt. But temporary jobs are a leading indicator. So, if you look at corporations and how much they hire people month over month for just you know short term work, that's a really good preliminary indicator of when things are happening. And we did see three months in a row. Believe it or not, we saw the month of February, March, and April all be down. And then something happened in May that took us all by surprise, turned back up. 2008, we saw 500,000 temporary jobs eliminated. This year, we saw about 150,000 eliminated. And in last month, we added back about 65,000. So it reversed again. Now, if the trend goes back the other way next month for the month of June, which we'll find out pretty soon here, well, then that might be a reason for concern, to be conservative in your investments, get out of some of those high-flying tech names, take your profit, rotate to dividend payers, or rotate to bonds. Bonds are the best bond market we've seen in a decade or more, uh, to take advantage of high-yielding good bonds that will go up in price and, as the interest rates fall. Or and, money mar- and money market's paying over 5%, Phil. Exactly. Why you can't get a CD for six months, paying 5.5%, not a bad deal.
1: Um, Again, we're running uh, close to our, uh, we have a few minutes, but running close to the end. And I hate to save the loaded question for last, but give you plenty of time to explain it. Um, I know you forecast every January. What do you bet on? What do you think is going to happen? Hey, so far, Phil, uh, what'd you get right? What'd you get wrong? What are you going to do about it?
2: Got a couple wrong, but no forecast should ever be permanent. It's it's, it's a great way and, to and do it. And that's not
1: a slight, Phil. Uh, you, you no, no, you know. I agree. I, uh, look, we forecast because – Part of what makes us, I say, good at our job is we know how to adapt. We know how to bob and weave. So let's yeah, let's look yeah. at what you were thinking in January. What are you thinking today?
2: We like to create guardrails to go in, and that's what a forecast does. gives me the guardrails while I'm driving down the road, so I stay in the center lane. And I might bounce through a guardrail, but it won't keep me keep from going off the road. First, we thought value stocks were going to be growth stocks, and clearly they have not uh value stocks to your point earlier are not up and growth stocks are so that one we've gotten wrong i do think it's an opportunity to add more growth after this inflationary scare but for now that one's not right but what does it mean it means we haven't given up on the value story but we still own quite a bit of growth so we're tilted towards value and we're not getting thwarted because of it we are not getting a nice dividend but it hasn't met my expectation the idea of adding long bonds something we really popular really in favor of this year we've added double the, the amount of the time it takes to get your money back it's called duration or maturity so we've done that and so far that hasn't paid a dividend either but we haven't lost on that yeah we, we, we've done quite well earning significant yield we thought international stocks might be an opportunity in the second half of the year and so far that doesn't look like it but if the dollar begins to weaken because our economy slows down let's make a move into international assets to success we thought the fed would stop hiking interest rates this year we actually thought they would do it back in march and they haven't so i'd say we got that wrong but in the end the idea of rates going stopping and going back down was our primary theme and that's why we want to own more bonds and that hasn't worked out yet but we expect that to happen as well and then finally we really thought that interest rates would begin to go back down towards the end of the year and that seems to be the scenario that we're getting to the high end of the interest rate they to to go back down so no thesis is permanent but I do think for us the change would be that we'll probably add growth stocks sooner rather than later if we get a significant sell-off in growth then we'll add them back in We've already made the, 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 the trade into longer term bonds, earning a big yield because of that. We have not looked to go overseas just yet, but keeping an eye on it in case the U.S. dollar weakens, and that gives us the opportunity. That's where we're at today.
1: Bill, I think uh, without, without review, I think you've done a pretty amazing job for your client. You historically have, and that's the guardrail. Don't blow up a client. Keep them in the game. And the long-term prospects are usually pretty good. I can't thank you enough for jumping in. Uh, we'll have Mike back next week. Can't wait to have you back, Phil. We have lots of stuff to talk about. You're fantastic. You've uh, explained it, hopefully, in a way that gives our clients a little peace of mind. I appreciate your our personal friendship friendship to the company and the
2: show. God bless. Be well. Enjoy your summer, buddy. Thank you. you as well. Take care, everybody. Have a great summer. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic and Michael will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.